This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of thoracic disc herniation from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Thoracic disc herniations are relatively uncommon and make up only 1% of all herniated nucleus pulposes. With respect to the epidemiology, most thoracic disc herniations are commonly seen between the 4th and 6th decades of life, and keep in mind as the disc desiccates, it is less likely to actually herniate. With respect to location, thoracic disc herniations usually involve the middle to lower levels of the thoracic spine. T11 to T12 is the most common level. 75% of all thoracic disc herniations occur between T8 and T12. Keep in mind that risk factors include underlying Schuerman's disease that may dispose to thoracic herniated nucleus pulposus. Classification of thoracic disc herniations are usually based on herniation type and location classification. With respect to herniation type, there is a bulging nucleus, an extruded disc, or a sequestered disc. Keep in mind that in the setting of a bulging nucleus, the annulus remains intact. With respect to an extruded disc, this is a herniation through the annulus but is confined by the posterior longitudinal ligament. A sequestered herniation is when there is disc material free in the canal. The location classification is broken down into central, posterolateral, and lateral. With respect to the presentation of a thoracic disc herniation, patients usually have symptoms of pain and they may have neurologic symptoms. Pain can manifest as axial back pain or chest pain, which are the most common symptoms. Thoracic radicular pain is a band-like chest or abdominal pain along the course of the intercostal nerve. Arm pain may be seen in a herniated nucleus pulposus at T2 to T5. Neurologic symptoms may include numbness, paresthesias, sensory changes, myelopathy, paraparesis, bowel or bladder changes in 15% to 20% of patients, and or sexual dysfunction. On physical exam, you may find localized tenderness, root symptoms, cord compression and findings of myelopathy, as well as Horner syndrome. Root symptoms can be dermatomal sensory changes, specifically paresthesias and dysesthesias. Cord compression and findings of myelopathy can include weakness, upper motor neuron findings, and gait changes. With respect to weakness, this can manifest as true weakness or mild paraparesis, as well as abnormal rectal tone. Upper motor neuron findings include hyperreflexia, sustained clonus, and or a positive Babinski sign. Gait changes can include a wide-based spastic gait. Horner syndrome is seen with a herniated nucleus pulposus at T2 to T5. With respect to imaging, lateral radiographs may show disc narrowing and may show calcifications, otherwise known as osteophytes. An MRI is the most useful and important imaging method to demonstrate thoracic disc herniations, and it allows for identification of neoplastic pathology, can see intradural pathology, and will show myelomalacia. Keep in mind that an MRI may not fully demonstrate a calcified component of the herniated disc. The disadvantage of an MRI is that there is a high false positive rate. In a study looking at asymptomatic individuals, 73% had thoracic disc abnormalities, 37% had frank herniations, and 29% of these had cord compression. Treatment of a thoracic disc herniation can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity modification, physical therapy, and symptomatic treatment. And this is indicated in the majority of cases. So modalities of non-operative management include immobilization and short-term rest, analgesics, progressive activity restoration, and keep in mind injections may be useful for symptoms of radiculopathy. With respect to outcomes, the majority of patients improve with non-operative treatment. 
Operative options include discectomy with possible hemicorpectomy or fusion. Surgery is indicated in a small minority of patients with thoracic disc herniations, and these indications include acute disc herniation with myelopathic findings that is attributable to the lesion, especially if there's progressive neurologic deterioration, and in cases of persistent and intolerable pain. With respect to the technique, debate between discectomy with or without fusion is controversial. Most studies do indicate that anterior or lateral via a costotransversectomy is the best approach. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail, specifically a transthoracic discectomy and a costotransversectomy. A transthoracic discectomy is thought to be the best approach for central disc herniations. Complications to be aware of include intercostal neuralgia. With respect to techniques, this can be done with video-assisted thoracic surgery or VATS. Costotransversectomy is indicated for a lateral disc herniation as well as for extruded or sequestered discs. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, Thoracic disc herniations most typically occur at what level of the thoracic spine? And the choices are 1, upper third, 2, junction of the upper third and middle third, 3, middle third, 4, junction of the middle third and the lower third, and 5, the lower third. The correct answer to this question is 5, the lower third. So most thoracic disc herniations occur in the lower or caudal third of the thoracic spine. This predilection may be related to the unique anatomic and biomechanical environment of that region. The 11th and 12th ribs do not join the rib cage anteriorly and do not form a true articulation with the transverse processes posteriorly. Furthermore, flexion and torsional forces tend to concentrate between T10 and L1. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is a true statement regarding thoracic disc herniations? And the choices are 1, are most commonly discovered during the 5th to 7th decades of life, 2, occur with similar frequency as cervical disc herniations, 3, occur most commonly in the mid-thoracic or apical region of the spine, 4, can be found in 40% of asymptomatic individuals, and 5, are best treated surgically with posterior laminectomy and excision. The correct answer to this question is 4, can be found in 40% of asymptomatic individuals. So symptomatic herniations of the thoracic spine are much less common than those of the cervical or lumbar region. They tend to occur most commonly during the third to fifth decades of life, and although they can be found at all levels, they are most common in the lower third near the thoracolumbar region. Posterior laminectomy and disc excision has the highest rate of neurologic deterioration and is not recommended. Multiple studies have shown that herniated thoracic discs can be found at one or more levels in 40% of asymptomatic individuals. Moving on to the next question. Radiating pain associated with a posterolateral thoracic disc herniation typically follows what pattern? And the choices are 1. Extending down the spine into the lumbosacral region. 2. Down the inner aspect of either upper extremity. 3. Cephalad up to the cervical thoracic junction. 4. Around or through the chest to the anterior wall and 5 down the contralateral lower extremity. The correct answer to this question is 4, around or through the chest to the anterior wall. So although symptomatic thoracic disc herniations can affect more caudal structures, even to the point of paralysis, the pattern of radiating pain has been described as either following the dermatomal band around the chest or feeling to the patient as if the pain passes straight anteriorly to the chest wall. Moving on to the next question. 
a patient has a large T11, T12 disc herniation that is causing substantial compression of the spinal cord. The patient reports walking imbalance over the past few weeks. Examination of the patient's reflexes is likely to show, and the choices are 1. Normal reflexes in the upper extremities and hyperreflexia in the lower extremities. 2. Hyperreflexia in the upper extremities and normal reflexes in the lower extremities. 3. Hyperreflexia in the upper extremities and hyporeflexia in the lower extremities. 4. Hyperreflexia in the upper and lower extremities. And 5. Hyperreflexia in the upper and lower extremities. The correct answer to this question is 1. Normal reflexes in the upper extremities and hyperreflexia in the lower extremities. So the patient has a large thoracic disc herniation that is causing spinal cord compression. The history of gait imbalance suggests that the patient has thoracic-level myelopathy. Assuming that the patient does not have lumbar stenosis, compression of the spinal cord at the T11-T12 level will cause upper motor neuron findings distal to it. Hyperreflexia of the upper extremities would suggest that the patient has cervical spinal cord compression. In this patient, the upper extremity reflexes should be normal. Most likely, the patient will exhibit hyperreflexia in the lower extremities, which is an upper motor tract sign. And moving on to the final question, a 55-year-old woman undergoes endoscopic transthoracic anterior surgery for a herniated disc in the thorax. What is the most likely complication following surgery? And the choices are 1. Increased kyphosis, 2. Pseudoarthrosis, 3. Intercostal neuralgia, 4. Pneumothorax, and 5. Cardiac tamponade. The correct answer to this question is 3. Intercostal neuralgia. So intercostal neuralgia is the most common complication following endoscopic transthoracic anterior surgery for a herniated disc. In the study by Dickman et al., the authors address the surgical strategies required to resect residual herniated thoracic discs. Endoscopic surgery requires establishment of portals between the ribs and frequently causes compression of the intercostal nerves. Therefore, the most common complication is intercostal neuralgia. Pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade are extremely rare. Stillerman et al. present a review of 71 patients with 82 herniated thoracic discs that underwent transthoracic, transfacet pedicle sparing, lateral extracavitary, or transpedicular approaches for removal of the herniation. That's all for this review about thoracic disc herniation. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.